Hello everybody, myself and Matthew just had a lovely conversation with the wonderful Anna Jordan, writer, director, multi-talented, beautiful human being. And uh, yeah, we spoke about all things to do with her career, how she started out when she trained at Lambda and how she got into writing for both stage and film. Yeah, it's great. I mean, we've known Anna since she directed us in Mike Bartlett's Earthquakes in London when we were both at drama school in 2016, far too many years ago now. But Anna's always been a realist. She says things as it is. She doesn't sugarcoat anything. It's practical, well thought out advice in this episode. There's plenty of laughs and some um, beautiful stuff towards the end of the episode as well when we talk about um, her father's poetry, which is something you just have to stick around for in this episode. It was so, so good. And uh, while we've got you here before we play our chat with Anna we'd love to ask if you can please subscribe to our podcast whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify um, download episodes please share them with your friends follow us on social media talk to us we're really trying to build a community here and it's fantastic to see the platform growing so please do keep supporting us in that way it means the absolute world to us and now without further ado we'll hand you over to the lovely episode this week with Anna Jordan. Oh my god, oh my god. This is a great start. Right, this is staying in. <laughs> oh god, I bet it will as well. No, what I wanted to ask you is if I completely muck something up, can I say can I just pause for a minute and say, can you edit that out? Should we yeah. do that now? Do you want to pause and then ask, should we edit that out? Is that should no. we do that? No, it's no. fine. You can keep this bit in. You can keep this bit in. <laughs> well, hello, Anna. Hello. Hello. We got there. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. I'm here. Hello. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm good. Yeah, it's lovely to speak to you both. Um, yeah, and very nice. It's taken us a while to get here, hasn't it? I'm sorry I've been uh, a bit crappy with my availability and stuff, but I'm really thrilled and thrilled that you guys are doing this as well. You know, it's such a great project and sort of enterprise and I love it uh, when students I've worked with do great stuff like this students oh. actors uh you were students you're actors now hardly but you know that's, <laughs> well, that's why we've been available yeah and you've not been available <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's great to have you here now and actually Anna's got a writing deadline tonight and is taking time out of her evening to talk to us so we hugely appreciate that and we hope that's that we don't great. you know interrupt the nice flow at all it's a nice little procrastination exercise. <laughs> That's good. No, it's That's good. I'm really, I'm really pleased. It's great to be able to speak to you. Brilliant. So we'll crack on with the questions. We we love to start mm. towards the beginning of our guests' careers. So before working as a writer and director, you were an actor and you trained at Lambda. And you described That's your right. time at Lambda not just as actor training, but theatre training. Can you explain yeah. that definition? And from that, does anything stand out from your theatre training that you still use today in your work? Well, absolutely, yeah. But it's weird because, I mean, it really was a long time ago now. So I met up with my Lambda friends not so long ago and we were talking. I mean, it's it's 21 years since we started there. Um, and 
when I talk about like it being a theatre training, it's a weird thing because if I mean I, I do have things specifically that I remember from Lambda, but I don't have a lot of stuff that I can just recall. It's just uh, you will remember this from being at Arts Ed. It's over that three years, it's just ingrained in you, and it's so many different things about you know we talked about mentioned this on Twitter earlier, didn't we? About being in the moment, um, mm. about. Um, other like technical things like we did Alexander Technique, which I don't think you guys did at Art Said. I think you did yoga, did you? But um, yeah, yeah, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that stuff, the Alexander Technique, really stayed with me. Um, and yeah, just obviously, there's you know, I uh, Lambda was certainly then. I think still now termed a classical training, so you you'd learn. Um, you know, lots about classical text. We do Shakespeare, you know, all that stuff. Um, learning how to use your voice uh, properly and well. Um, we had Yvonne Morley was head of voice when I was at Lambda and she was incredible. And I actually had uh, vocal nodules, which you can still hear in my voice a little bit. I've got quite a husky voice. Also got a big cold, a big cold at the moment. Um, but so I learned a lot about technically how to use my voice, which I was then able to sort of take on in my teaching and directing. Um, I think... I suppose the stuff that really stands out for me is the work that we did with Mark Bell, um, who's a fantastic teacher who was head of movement at Lambda when I was there. And that was where we studied stuff like clown and bouffant and those sort of uh, disciplines, I guess. And I think without sort of going into too much detail, I think studying with Mark, I kind of learned about why things were funny and why things had like, a comedic impact and dramatic impact and um and yeah that's a real that was a kind of a real eye-opener you know um and something that really stayed with me so absolutely loads of stuff but really good to know that the that the skills are transferable you know that that, that mm-hmm. you're not just you're not just tied into acting you know and I think that's really important for actors now right because we're in a mess aren't we I mean you know the whole industry is in a mess it wasn't too healthy before pandemic and now we need to diversify we need to be more flexible so so I think it's really important yeah yeah Yeah, absolutely um I I was going to actually ask about um there you know there's tons of famous quotes on writing and often repeated cliches write about what you know etc are there any quotes or cliches that in your experience as a writer stand out as bang on the money or or is there any equally wildly inaccurate or incorrect yeah yeah definitely so um I think the ones that really stay with me are um I don't think they have them anymore but on BBC Writers Room website which is a great resource by the way for writers Um, particularly because you can read scripts and it's great to see how screenplays are formatted and, you know, how they're brought to life on the page. Um, But they used to have these little like pens and pencils that ran along the top of like the page of the website or whatever. And I always remember, this is quite funny because it shows shows what I knew when I first started writing, but one of them was a quote from Paul Abbott and it said, I hope I'm right in that, I'm sure it is. And it said, writing is rewriting. And I remember at the time I just started writing and I was really like a two draft, three draft wonder. Oh, sorry. Sorry about that. I'm going to turn that off. <laughs> um, uh, yes. Yeah, so, so I was like, 
is writing rewriting though like you know I've had a rehearsed reading of this play and I only did three drafts of it and you know maybe re maybe writing is rewriting for some people but I don't think it is for me <laughs> and then and now I know so truly that that it is that that it's about the honing the continuous like recrafting and reworking and and that's really exciting and I think my the second thing that I really live by is um and I bang on about this all the time um she's uh, um Anne Lamott uh is a brilliant writer and who's written m- much great stuff about life and writing but she has a chapter in her book called Bird by Bird which is about shitty first drafts and it's really <laughs> about how important it is that you understand and accept how shitty that first draft will be and can be And actually, when you put those two things together, the shitty first draft and writing is rewriting, you've got, that's the work, you know, that is actually the work of writing. It's the faith and the confidence and the like playfulness to to throw words on a page and to bring that first draft to life. And then the discipline and the kind of commitment to rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it and you know I think when you break things down into kind of logistics like that it's useful because I think particularly with writing sometimes we feel like there has to be some sort of magic present or we are waiting for some sort of inspiration or some sort of divine thing and actually whether you're a writer for a job or whether you write outside the thing you're making your living from, writing is work and you've just got to be able to get down to it. So I think those two uh, quotes stand me in really good stead, actually. But it's taken me a long time to get there. You know, I, it's, it's taken me a long time to kind of realise that those were the bare bones of it. Absolutely. I was going to ask almost if it's really hard, especially for early career actors to not take mm. the process of rewriting personally, because, you know, actors, oh, yeah, yeah. even even though actors, you know, expect to get notes in rehearsals, even some actors struggle to take notes on board. I know we've always been in yeah. rehearsal rooms with some actors that like refuse notes even. So, um, <laughs> but, you know, it's an expected thing, whereas I think early career writers, especially because you hear from some people that act and write that they find writing much more difficult in terms of being themselves and putting themselves on a page than just getting up right. and acting. Is it some, yes. are there, do you have any advice for people um, in terms of their early writing career of accepting things like notes from people that are, um, you know, dramaturgs on their work or just, you know, knowing Absolutely. that that first draft is called like having the ugly baby. My friend, Ricky Beadle Blair said is, uh, oh, doing Ricky, the, uh, yeah, he's yeah. amazing. He is brilliant. An ugly baby. I've never heard that. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I do. So I do. So the first thing to say about notes, if you're early in your career, like, so it's, I mean, of course, there are things that you can get wrong as a writer. You know, um, there are definitely things you'd see on the page and you think that's not right or that doesn't work or that's way too long or whatever. But I think it's really important to remember that in art with art in general and I do you know I sort of uh, for a while really rejected the term art and artist because I felt it sounded kind of pretentious or airy-fairy but I really embrace it now like with art in general there kind of is no right or wrong so I think what you've got to the first thing you've got to think about when you are receiving notes from people as an early career playwright or screenwriter or whatever is 
Who are those people? And are they the right people for you to be collaborating with? Because just, you know, if it's a a theatre that's commissioned you to write a play, then that's one thing. But that also doesn't mean that you then have to endlessly redraft and twist it into exactly what they want it to be. I think it's it's really about... um, about finding, making sure you're writing with the the right people for you. And you know, that's hard. I know from experience, because if you're early in your career, you just want to work with people who want to work with you, particularly if they're going to pay you. Uh, so it's a very fine balance. But what I would say is um, that, oh God, it's really hard. <laughs> that uh, at the beginning of it, is this what you're asking me, by the way? This is what, for, for writers, or were you asking me for actors? No, absolutely. It's interesting because your answer actually has a lot of parallels in terms of early career actors mm. being happy to work and just happy to work. And then later on in their career going, no, actually, I suit this person. And I, you know, I don't want to be spoken to like that, or I don't want to receive notes that way, or I work better with yeah. these types of people. So I just think the parallels are there, but the answer, you are answering exactly the question I asked. Yeah. Oh, great, great. Okay, so I think that another thing is like to think about how do you want to receive those notes? You know, what works well for you? Do you always want to go into the office or get on a Zoom for two hours? Sometimes that's not good. Do you want the um, the notes in an email? Something I find great now is like um, I work with people who annotate the script, which just mm-hmm. makes it so much easier for me. And that's like um, probably further down the line. But yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no hard or fast sort of way of making sure that notes aren't painful but um but I mean they shouldn't they shouldn't be too painful they can be uncomfortable but also you've got to have the confidence and the ability to push back a little bit as well you know you don't have to do everyone's notes exactly as they are given to you I think that's important to remember and just to try to maintain that ownership I guess yeah absolutely and everybody's the actors the director everybody's trying to achieve the best result at the end of the day so exactly um did you uh Matthew I think you said something about actors feeling uh like weird about being rewritten were you saying that like when in the rehearsal room or whatever yeah well I think it's you know the people take notes in different ways and I think some people just you know never ask for clarity even if they don't understand what it is some people know exactly what it is and can hit redirection straight away and some people I've seen in rehearsal rooms I mean this was more in drama school times when people were you know just that people had different personalities people actually spoke back at the directors that were giving them notes so it's a very (laughs) different approach (laughs) yeah I was just thinking I I, specifically though if you're in a if as an actor I'll just chuck this in. If you're in a room as an actor and you've got the writer there and they're rewriting on the hoof, which does happen, you know, very often, don't ever take uh, don't ever take it personally if your text gets rewritten because as writers, we're always, you know, it's a part of your text or whatever part of your lines gets rewritten or cut or anything because as writers, we're always just there listening out for stuff in so much detail about rhythm, about authenticity and all that stuff. And I'd say it's very rarely a comment on an actor's ability to bring a text to life. Yeah, it's just making me giggle because I don't know. Sorry, Christian remembers this because we did um, in second year in the Shakespeare project, I think he did, his half of the year did All's Well That Ends Well. And I think he got cast as the the lead part and he was very excited. And then all like half his scenes got cut and that was Shakespeare. (laughs) So it can't have been the dialogue. (laughs) 
I remember. Oh, poor Christian. Oh no, it's always poor Christian, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> poor me. Um, Anna, I'm really interested um, to hear what your thoughts are on the next question. It seems there are as many writers out there as there are actors, um, and with the same problem of trying to stand out in a hugely competitive industry. How does an early career writer create work that stands out or is that sort of a wholly the wrong attribute to focus on? Well I think that's a really good question and something I've been talking a lot about recently and I get concerned when I see early career writers being told things like uh, write something that's going to surprise us or I saw this on Twitter the other day write something that no one else has written or that no one else could write or, you know, write something, we need something fresh, we want something, you know, for competitions or whatever, we want something that we've never seen before, that we've never read before. Now, I get the sentiment behind all of those comments. But the truth is, there's a lot of writers in the world, right? you know, and, and you are, you're never, as a writer, the best advice I could give is to find what excites you. And like, I think of it as like pulling a little thread, you start to tug on this thread. And if that thread comes away from the jumper, this is like a jumper metaphor. I don't know where I'm going with this quite. No, we're with you. We're with you. <laughs> You're right there with me. Um, it, you start to pull and the thread starts to come away and it starts to become interesting. Then that is, that's what you should be writing about. Now, there's obviously conversations to be had that are really important conversations about ownership of ideas and stories and about authenticity and about whether perhaps you're writing the story of somebody else who should be writing that story who perhaps hasn't had that opportunity to tell that story and um, so I'm completely aware of that that to just say write whatever you want to write actually isn't necessarily the best advice or the most straightforward advice at the moment what I'm saying is if it doesn't excite you then it's very unlikely that it will be able to excite other people I think so write what you find interesting um people say write what keeps you up at night I mean I don't know you might be a good sleeper maybe maybe you're not kept up at night about it but write what keeps coming back to you I think what kind of keeps um yeah, what, what you keep kind of revisiting and what's exciting for you. I think because you can't fake that stuff, you know, you can't fake it. And I think as soon as you start faking, as soon as you start writing what you think people want you to write, you, I think you're on a losing streak. And the other thing is that if you are an early career playwright, then you will be finding your voice. And it's so important in those early years to find that voice do you know what I mean and not to be too influenced by other things I'm going to finish answering this question now but if so if someone had told me when I wrote my first play that I would have a play on at the royal court in 10 years I would have said I'm not waiting fucking 10 years (laughs) (laughs) the truth is at the time I thought this play could get on this play is good enough to get on this but um but they weren't or maybe they were, but it was better for me that I had that time. So I think it's really hard for writers when they're working, you know, whether it's a spec script for TV or film or whether it's a play. It's really hard sometimes to write and think this might not get on. But the truth is, 
everything you write moves you forward in your career, whether it ends up being performed or made or not. And I think that's quite important to remember. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you spoke about, you know, we we spoke about the whole thing of write about what you know. And then there's the thing of, you know, write something that no one else could ever do. And you mentioned about, you know, what keeps you up at night or what keeps coming back yeah. to you. That doesn't yeah. have to be something that you know and you want to talk about. It could be something that you want to find out the answer to. And the process of writing the play is your way yeah. of trying to work that out. I know I've, I've heard some playwrights talk about it in that way, in that way, yeah. in that way. Um, but, you know, there are people that you can learn off in playwriting and especially, you know, the greats of playwriting, because like any industry, playwriting has its greats from, you know, Shakespeare to Chekhov, Carol Churchill yeah. to Arthur Miller. And you've mentioned before um, Sarah Kane, uh, who's yeah. another, you know, who was another incredible writer as a huge influence on your work. Um, what recurring qualities do you see in the very best plays? And how can you as a writer be influenced by incredible work without feeling like you're trying to write like Sarah Kane? Right. That's a really good question. And I've had like quite a weird uh, sort of journey with my playwriting, only in that at the beginning of my career, I kind of felt like I never wanted to be too influenced by other people because I felt like it was cheating, which is a bit naive, really, because the best writers I know really kind of um, uh, consume other work and, and are totally inspired by it and totally, you know, um, you borrow, don't you? Or, you you, you know, um, you're, you're influenced by. But I feel like at the beginning I felt a little bit like... Um, like I didn't want to do that. And so I sort of really kind of ploughed forward and... And, and didn't try to emulate and really just tried to write what I wanted to see on stage, I suppose. Um, but I think in terms of what are the, you, you've asked me what are the reoccurring things I see in plays that are, uh, that I think make good plays. Is that right? Yeah. In any of your favourite plays or plays that influence to you, stuff from Sarah Kane, do you see anything that's recurring in the very best work out there? I think that... Um, there's an element of surprise. Mm. And I don't mean that in a sort of contrived way in that you're thinking, I am going to surprise the audience. But I think it's about going, I'm going to be playful and I'm going to imagine what this world could be or where this story could go. Um, there's a bit at the end of Lungs by Duncan Macmillan where I don't want to say it too explicitly because it will be a spoiler for anyone that hasn't seen it, but there's <laughs> this wonderful monologue where it just shoots forward like 30 40 years through this monologue while you've been watching this conversation between these two people and that to me I remember watching that and thinking like I felt that in my body I felt that movement and that change that change of form um and so I think it's the it's the ability to be playful it's the ability to be surprising and to not be too precious and also I think you know, uh, Mark Ravenhill said something great on Twitter the other day about how messy plays are better than perfect plays. And that that really kind of comforted me because I thought, I'm going to stop trying to make things that are perfect. The mess is enjoyable because life is messy. And I think all the plays that I love are kind of imperfect. Um, but also what I would say is, I suppose, oh, this is a bit of a negative way to answer this really, but 
thing, plays, film, TV, I see that I don't want to, that I don't think has that kind of magic element, is when the character's arcs aren't followed through properly or the characters act in a way that serves the play rather than serving themselves. And that's the Mm -hmm. real, I mean, that's the real key of writing, right? Is that your characters are operating in your world. You want to tell a story, but you but your your characters want to live their lives they don't just want to serve you um and so uh, and serve the play and so I talked recently about like um well I've talked often about an exercise that I love to do called this is my story where for every character in a play or a film or whatever I've written I'll go through and do like a a little synopsis of you know I uh of a specific character and the story from their point of view. And it's quite fun to try it with like um, fairy tales. You can do it with Jack and the Beanstalk, you know, do it from the point of view of the giant um, where you realise that actually the giant's been really hard done by and Jack's just like broken <laughs> into, <laughs> into yeah. his house. Um, that's a really useful exercise. So when there's a real satisfaction and an, 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 an uh, yeah, and a joy to seeing characters path paths really well explored um even if they don't go the way you think they're gonna go or the way they should go or even if it feels like they stop short it's um yeah so characters journeys I think are are really really key as well yeah so interesting I love the sound of that exercise I I might try that myself actually yeah it's it is really useful and the thing about it if you're doing it for theatre it's just really useful to make sure all your characters are really utilized and used but if you're doing it for tv it can really open up story which is really useful yeah yeah i was going to ask you're you're one of those brilliant writers who can shift between writing for stage and for the screen and while it's (laughs) 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 while it's not unheard of playwrights i can name uh, like jez butterworth and dennis Mm -hmm. kelly are vastly successful across both mediums and then there are those who can't or hold back from it. Um, Simon Stephen mentions his reservations on writing for screen on the Royal Court Playwrights podcast. Sure. What are the sort of key differences in your approach to writing for medium from one medium to the other? Yeah, I mean, the differences are huge. So on Twitter the other day, there was this sort of weird, weird, I think it was mainly American-based beef going on between playwrights and and TV writers or something. It was really weird. And I think someone at some, somebody somewhere had said that, that playwriting was a higher art or something like that. And I, I thought I I spoke up about it because I thought, I mean, playwriting is hard, right? (laughs) It really is. But try developing like a series that is, oh my God, like the scope of it is enormous. And So I think they're both really difficult in their own way. I think that one of the key differences is that in theatre, generally you are left alone more at the beginning, which is when, but when you're developing something for TV or film, there are a lot more voices in that process. Usually, you know, if you're, if you are being commissioned or, you know, you're working with a production company or whatever from the very beginning. And I actually think when I first started working in telly, I mean, when I first started developing stuff years ago, I just took that as as negativity. Like, I took why why are they telling me this is wrong before I've even started it? Whereas in theatre, at least people were letting me go away, work on something, and bring it to them. So I think it's about yeah, really understanding and knowing that 
that there are going to be more voices involved, that it is going to be more of a collaborative process, I think. Um, there's really obvious differences like uh, theatre. I mean, in many ways, theatre asks you to be more either more contained in terms of location and time or, and a number of characters or more creative in the way that you show that, you know, more stylized or more conceptual. Um, so when you do first write for TV, and one of my first experiences writing for TV was writing on Succession, really, um, when you realise you can get them on a jet and fly them to an island or something. I mean, like, not all things, not all things have an HBO budget, so not, you can't always do that. <laughs> Just knowing that you can send your character down to the shops for a pint of milk and you can capture that, you know, you can capture the little interactions they have along the way. Um, that That's like a big difference. Suddenly you feel this freedom. Um, but I also think it's about, you know, one of the biggest differences how we consume it. You know, when you have a captive audience in the theatre, people are sitting there, they've paid their ticket, they're not going to leave, you hope. <laughs> um, <laughs> in TV, we, you know, we have, there are a million different distractions and, because of that, it has to be more propulsive. It has to be more hooky. And and I think that's hard sometimes because I I kind of hate that when people talk about hooks and stuff. I always think, oh, I can't really do that. Like, I just like writing about the characters. But then I realised, actually, all a hook is, is that the viewer wants to know what's going to happen to your character. And actually, that's that's fair enough. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> that that yeah. makes complete sense. Um, yeah. But I wouldn't say that I'm, I mean, it's been a hard journey. And I had a, an agent, my American agent, pushed me, really pushed me to uh, to interview for succession and stuff. I was very nervous, very nervous, very inexperienced. And obviously it was such a sort of big project, but he really pushed me and he was so, he had confidence in me and he made me feel confident myself. And I think you know, sometimes you're really lucky to have people that in, like that in your life, you know. Um, but I still find it hard. still find it really hard now. Yeah. Here at Actors Coaching International, we like to partner up with the best, which is why we're offering In The Room listeners 20% discount on all of our classes. When booking, simply put in capital letters, In Room 20, that's In room 2020 in the discount code or email us hello actorsci.com mentioning in the room when booking you mentioned succession a couple of times uh, i was going to move on to something around that in a minute um sure. differences in medium aside projects vary hugely for writer from one to the next and yeah. you've written plays set in pubs and council estates and then television shows for succession yeah. set in the world of media corporations or killing Eve with Russian assassins dressed as clowns. <laughs> um, how do you specifically alter your writing process depending on the requirements of a specific project? Are there processes or stages in your work that you always stay the same regardless? Do you have like a base? Uh, no. So what I always say, firstly, I say I don't have a process. And then I will say that my process is pissing in the wind. So it's, like, <laughs> it's, different, for every, it's different for every project. Something I've learned now is that something that I don't take too easily is in film and TV, nine times out of 10, you're expected to produce an outline before you've actually written scenes. And that, to me, is quite a creatively deadening experience. So I found that really difficult. And I've had to find ways of, like, 
creatively exploring the characters I'm writing about and the worlds that they inhabit without actually writing the script if I am having to write an outline because, and this is going to sound like kind of wanky and pretentious, but I don't care because it's true, that, that, you know, characters will reveal plot. They will tell you what they're going to do uh, often, not always, but often. And sometimes, and you only get to know those characters through writing them. And so mm-hmm. the idea of doing it down the other way feels really weird. And so for me, if I'm working on film and TV, it's always about like sort of patching that together. Like, how can I get that create, how can I do that creative work in the background and still be building this solid kind of outline? So that's really tricky. I um, Things that stay the same, I mean, music is an enormous part of my process. So I'm, you know, and I, you guys might remember, so we should say this, shouldn't we? I don't know if you'll say it on the podcast, but so I directed you guys in Earthquakes in London. Yeah. yeah. By Mike Bartlett at um, Arts Ed. And that was a like such a wonderful experience. Six years ago now, we reckon. Yeah, six. Yeah, um, coming up to. Yeah. And I don't know if you remember what I was like about the music then. I mean, I had playlists coming up my arse. I just yeah. was obsessed with the music in that show and the presence of the music throughout. And so when I write, I'll have like a playlist of just like music that's like the vibe of the piece. And then I might have like a character playlist. I might have a relationship playlist. That stuff really keeps me anchored to what is the heart of the work. Um, So I I find anchors. I create anchors for myself, whether it's like, you know, a piece of research or it's an image or an article. Um, And, uh, you know, or the music, which is always really, really key. but yeah, that's it's it's hard. My process does change. It stays. I keep it very flexible. Um, yeah, from project to project. But you're still pissing in the wind. I'm still pissing in the wind. <laughs> I'd love to Always ask you. <laughs> I'd love to ask you a little bit more on as you said with the um, writing the outlines first. Have there yeah. ever been times where you've done that, sent it off, and then as you write the scenes, you go, oh, God, no, actually, I really don't want to write this outline, but you're stuck to it because if you're doing outlines for a series, it's presumably because you're part of a writer's room, a writer's yeah. team, and therefore your outlines are what someone else's start point is. Has that ever been immense? Have you ever That's been able right. to change it at that point, or are you just set yeah. and you have to find a way? No, I mean, there's always flexibility. So I remember for Killing Eve, um, we you know, and in most rooms, succession room as well, um, we would beat out the episodes. I don't even know if that's the right expression, you know. I keep saying it and I'm thinking, is beating out right? That, I mean, that we're talking. we're in a dangerous area there, I think, if I'm honest. But <laughs> I really need to know that beating out an episode is like an actual term because if it isn't, <laughs> I've just been embarrassing myself for years. Um, so you you do the beats of an episode together And then you are sent away. Usually this is how it happens. You are sent away like with that beat sheet (laughs) to sort of work on. But um, so I think with Killing Eve, there was there were some changes. I can't remember what it was. And then I got to create a little bit of that. um, That's that sort of episode on my own and create a a new character, which was really fun and really lovely. There's always flexibility, like with the feature film I'm working on, we we. I mean, it took me so long to do the um, outline and it has changed massively. It's changed massively. But I think, to be honest, the reason those outlines exist 
if it's not like if obviously if it's part of a series you know and you've got different writers writing different eps then yeah of course there has to be those outlines um but if it's something you know like a film or something you're working on i mean people have to have confidence to invest in it but you know invest in it financially invest in it so i do understand why they exist but yeah i mean they very often change um and also you know like you'll write an episode of something and then an earlier episode will will change and you'll have to change your episode after it's written. It It's a very, it's a huge puzzle. And actually that's why, again, the team you're working with is so important. It's like good communication, um, you know, good, uh, you know, feeling comfortable of being able to sort of say what you feel and stuff. That's, that, that's really important. It's always just about communication, particularly when you're working with a team. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to talk quickly on um, the horrible topic of writer's block. I mean, it's often, you know, the killer <laughs> of like the absolute killer of an inexperienced writer's progress on a piece of work. And then, you know, I'm sure it's something that comes up again, no matter what stage you are in your career. Do you have any sort of Anna Jordan approved cures to this horrible illness? Well, I do, because I tweeted about this the other day. I find when I come on these things, I'm just always talking about Twitter and it just makes me sound like I spend all day on Twitter, but I'm going to find it. I do. Christian will tell you I spend all day on Twitter. (laughs) Hang on a sec. I'm going to find it because I thought, because I thought it was quite good. No, because I, but it is what I think about writer's block. And this is really important. So the first thing I'm going to say to you is just reject that term altogether. Like the thing, um, the thing that I reject about writer's block, this is what I was tweeting about, was like, when, if you say something is blocked, it's really reductive because it's like either blocked or not blocked. Do you see what I mean? So in order to unblock, you're looking for this sort of golden magic moment of unblocking. And I think, guys, you'll probably appreciate this as well from from acting, um, from the acting world, in that you... It's quite often when when people talk around the language of like nailing a speech or like unlocking mm-hmm. something in a oh you nailed that I wouldn't I don't think I would say this to actors you might tell me otherwise but I would never say you nailed that monologue or you smashed it or that's right that's what it is because when we're looking for those moments it's really dangerous because what it does in the knowledge that we're looking for that unblocking moment that eureka moment we are putting so much pressure on ourselves on ourselves that even if that moment is out there to be had we're less likely to find it if we're looking for it does that make sense yeah yeah um so i think that saying if we talk about writer's block it's that's a that's terrifying state to be in right the idea that no more words will come forth that you are blocked and i think that so when i do that i try when i feel like i'm challenged like i can't come up with you know, an answer or a solution. I really just go and work on something else. You know, I try and do something like poetry or I try and do something abstract. So morning pages, um, Julia Cameron's morning pages, which people can Google, which is a great exercise. Um, Any sort of automatic writing exercise, you know, do the things that prove to you that you can write. And then also things like, I love, uh, Maya Angelou's writing process apparently was that she used to go to this hotel room that she rented uh like on an everyday basis she'd go there and she'd oh I might be getting this wrong so correct me if I uh, you know look it up and cut it if I've got it wrong um but that she'd 
that she'd do writing and then she'd play cards or play solitaire or um uh for the rest of the afternoon so she'd write in the morning um but basically so what i'm saying is the writing part of it is only part of it if you makes allow space in your brain your subconscious can solve so many things you know um so like if you feel that you can't solve something maybe trop, stop trying to solve it and do something else creative do something you know cut some vegetables <laughs> or do yeah. some washing up or something because um uh because it because answers and solutions can come to you and also do things like you know if you always work on your laptop write in a notepad, um, you know, use your voice recorder, use as many different mediums, write on the, you know, get those magic whiteboards, stick them up all over your wall and write all over your wall. You know, there's so many different ways to note down stuff and to, and to actually physically write that don't have to be at your laptop. You know, I've said loads of things there. So. <laughs> no, 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 some really, really valuable um, tips in there for sure. Um there's so many methods actors get taught to break down a piece of text, whether that's to work out, you know, objectives, character traits, subtext, themes. Yeah. From your perspective, Anna, what, what key things should actors try and consider or spot that a playwright has given them in the text? Well, I mean, so I'm trying to think what we did with earthquakes, but I've got a feeling that some of the tools that I would usually have used as a director with earthquakes in London, I didn't do because we, it was literally just such an enormous project, wasn't it? And we had, it was like eight, it was 80 scenes and we just kind of had to get, get down to it straight away. Um, so I, I'm not a fan of any technique that requires you to do one specific thing with every single piece of text on that page. Uh, that doesn't mean to say, though, that I'm not a fan of actioning. And for, oh, God, guys, can you explain actioning? So using transitive verbs to give yourself a way of, um, you know, using a line. So, uh, oh, God, oh, no. no, we no, had, I know. We, we, well, we had the author of the actioning book come in to Artsed. And I remember when we try, when various people around this circle tried to define what actioning meant or how to use it. <laughs> She was so militant with what it actually meant. She knew her process. So I'm terrified she's going to somehow come across this podcast yeah, and come, come, come get me. But I think it's just the using of a transitive verb. So, you know, to scare, to intimidate, yeah. very similar ones to, to as we said yeah. about, you know, unblocking or unlocking something. Yeah. So using, yeah, using a verb. With this line, I am um, purging you or I am slashing yeah. you or I am rebuking you there were some violent ones there I don't know why they came yeah, out I don't know what um, wow <laughs> wow what's all that about um but I do think that so that it's tools not rules I say that a lot um but I think what I mean by that is like like embrace tools but don't see them as rules you don't have to do them for everything but like if you're having trouble with a passage of text try actioning that text and you just mentioned there didn't you the actors thesaurus is that what it's called I think that's literally really what it's called. And I did really badly today, if not, aren't oh, we? No. I really I really suggest that you can get it as an app. The Actors Thesaurus is great, it's really useful. Um I think in terms of looking out for the clues of what playwrights are giving you, I mean, I'm a bit of a purist and a lot of people would really disagree with me, but I'm like 
right look down to the punctuation the punctuation is there for a reason my god like i will spend ages over is it an ellipsis is it a full stop is it a dash like i think that stuff really means something and also look at when the what look at when the playwright is oh shut up sorry <laughs> look at when the playwright is not giving you something to say do you know what i mean look at when what does the silence mean as well as what do the words mean? And I also think that a, a really useful sort of technical exercise for an actor to keep a text really fresh is just to, as you're speaking, reading, you know, whatever, identify the imagery in that text. And I find sometimes with an actor, it can be great to just allow them to move through the text and to visualise whatever image comes to mind on that piece of text and just kind of experience it. And that kind of visualisation can be really useful because what it does is it kind of leaves a footprint of something fresh and something uh, vibrant that can then really colour how the text comes out. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. 100%. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's really interesting to hear what you said about punctuation there, because I've been in acting classes before where they're like, forget all that <laughs> and yes, just sort of yeah. go in the moment of what you feel like. So I'm sure that <laughs> it's, the same, it's the same with stage directions. And I also think there's like a vibe um, about, you know, writers being precious about what actors changing lines or directors changing lines and stuff. But you know what? If it's old school, if it's boring, whatever. But I, you know, writers slave over those words and the amount, you know, that's the only thing we have control over. And so it, it, as a writer, if I went to see a production of one of my plays and words have been changed without it being discussed with me, I would be mm. utterly oh. But having said that, I would always be open to the conversation. I think that's really important. Um, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, before we move on to our rapid fire questions, we have one last question that I've been really looking forward to asking you. And it's that often, often writers are told that the way to get better is just to write, practice. Yeah. And there's no better advocate for this approach to writing than your father, Peter Gordon, <laughs> who wrote your mum, Alison King, a poem every day for 25 <laughs> years and put it under her pillow and it became Aww. a news story right and we'd yeah. recommend everyone to visit um a loveinverse.com where you can That's read right. peter's amazing work and what did it mean to you when your dad's work was read and appreciated by so many people and if it's not too much to ask we'd love if you could share with us a particular quote verse or a poem that stands yeah, out to you of course. So I'll try and give it, keep it brief. But so, yeah, my mum passed away six years ago now. And my mum and dad had this wonderful relationship. They met later in life. You know, they were sort of older parents and they just adored each other. You know, they had their problems. We had our problems, as every family does. But my dad is an actor, a brilliant actor and was a right, you know, is is an actor. Um, but he also wrote and he writes incredible poetry. And he'd write my mum this poem and put it under her pillow every day. And it became this real thing. And so... After my mum died, he continued writing poetry for her. Not every day, I should add, um, but he did continue to write for her. And then he moved in with my sister maybe three or four months after my mum died. And they had to move about 8,000 poems. 
and they were all handwritten and they were written on the back of scripts because my parents were both <laughs> actors. So they'd always be getting these scripts through for auditions and stuff. So it'd be like an odd bit of Shakespeare or an advert or something. They'd be written on the back of these scripts and these scraps of paper. And so my dad sat out in my sister's shed one summer and he went through all of them and he read them all and he sorted them into ones that he thought were good. And then he sorted them again. And then me and my sister sorted them. And it just became this thing. God, I can't even remember. How did it all come about? Anyway, so then we got down to like 200 poems that we really loved. And then we got this lovely website built. And and we put them up on the website. And what happened was, I can't remember... Um, it got picked up by Dolly Alderton and she tweeted about it and she said, I challenge you to remain dry eyed or something like that. And then and then it was from that tweet that it got picked up by the BBC. It got picked up by The Guardian, The Sunday Times. And it was all this just about the commitment, you know, that my dad had made and this collection of poet poetry, which is just absolutely beautiful. And he's a very good writer. I'm really proud of him. Um and you want me to read one? If you've got time, if that's not too much to ask, I'd yeah. love it if no, you I could read something. I don't mind, but I mean, I'm going quite dark here, guys. Are you all right with that? Yeah, why yeah. not? It, you know. <laughs> all right. I, I shall definitely, I can hold it together through this. I'm sure I can. But the reason I've picked this one is because I think that it's an incredible poem, but also um, it's like a really exceptional poem and I'll explain why afterwards, but it is quite dark, uh, but I can get through it. Um, it's called The Cedar Room and it that was written because, it was called that because when my mum passed away, um, she died in hospital and she, there was a room there called The Cedar Room, which is where if you had, uh, you know, someone that was terminally ill who was dying in hospital, it was this little room that you could come to to get a cup of tea. You could have a sleep there or whatever for the for the visitors. Mm -hmm. So, um, guys, I'm not going to perform it because it's been a while, but I'm just going to read it. OK, <laughs> absolutely. <clears throat> OK, so this is The Cedar Room by Peter Gordon. Um, the hospital has the Cedar Room where visitors may go to rest from watching the very sick oppressed by memories of them in their bloom, who now decline in short-breathed sleep, the cedar rooms to rest and weep. But I don't go there, afraid to tear my gaze from that dear, much-loved face of her whom I'll no more embrace. Oh God, that thought is hell to bear, for heaven is where she's everywhere, and hell is when she is not there. But now she's gone, and all is gloom, and all the world's a cedar room. Ah, sad. Oh, <laughs> so it is beautiful, but I think what's so exceptional about that poem, not just because it's my dad, but because he started writing it when she was still alive, and he finished it after she died. So it's like it covers that actual moment. And I think that, you know, life is so losing a parent losing a loved one is so painful and I think as artists whether it's as actors or as writers or poets that we do have the opportunity in the, to express a little bit about these incredible painful moments in our lives and I think that's such a release that's such like a a thing to be grateful for so 
yeah and then he continued to write other ones afterwards which were really lovely and beautiful um so yeah I do encourage people to go to the website but um oh and there's a book as well um oh brilliant but I can't I, it's it's on Amazon, but I can't. It's called A Love in Verse by Peter Gordon, but I'm not sure. Actually, the link's on the website, so you'll be able to see it there, aloveinverse.com. Head to the website, everyone. I mean, I can't pass any more comments on that on that poem myself. I just think we'll let it sit as it is because it was, it was so lovely, and thank you for talking so openly and honestly about it. No, and no, uh, we will just shift gears a little bit to finish the podcast with our stupid rapid fire questions. A completely, <laughs> completely that. <laughs> something, something that, you know, we write very quickly and are deliberately idiotic. So a very different um, form of communication. But we've got 10 questions that you have not seen before oh. this podcast. Some are industry okay. related, some are ridiculous, but there's 10 of them. And we ask you if you could answer them in a sentence or less. So Christian will ask okay. the first question. But Anna, are you ready to rumble? I'm ready to rumble. Let's do it. Oh, my God. Do you have an industry pet peeve? Cunts. <laughs> Didn't expect that. <laughs> <laughs> what would be the title of a play about your life? Oh, fucking hell, she's here again. <laughs> Favourite activity to do with your son? Um, treasure hunts. Oh, that prefer... was clean. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, fucking treasure hunts. Um, do you prefer writing for stage or screen? Stage. Should everybody listen to In the Room? Everybody. Out of all the characters you've written, original or as part of a series, which would you most like to sit down and have a drink with? Hench from Yen. <laughs> I know you'll like this one. The best swear word to write in dialogue. Oh, uh, oh, um, uh, I quite like clusterfuck. Nice. Um, yeah, let's go with clusterfuck. Describe the UK theatre industry in one word. <laughs> Cunt. No, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say that. Um, oh, God, varied. <laughs> what a I thought we were going to get clusterfuck again. <laughs> <laughs> Favourite alcoholic beverage? Oh, well, uh, uh, well, uh, um, uh, All of it. red wine. <laughs> nice. And finally, what's the best thing about your job as a writer? Mm, um, uh, uh, oh, creating characters. That's a really dull one to end on, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but it's an accurate one. Anna, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to talk to us oh, today. We've had an absolute blast and there's so much wonderful stuff in this episode that I know people are going to love. So thank you so much and we'll let you go and crack on with your writing, I guess. Thank you so much, guys. It's lovely to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>